Hey, this is Mark. We're broadcasting all week from the Vive event in Miami Beach. Nice assignment. Vive is a new tech event focused on the business of health systems, and they've gathered a range of top stakeholders to address key issues in digital health, from interoperability to investing, and from the convergence of health data to how COVID has advanced consumerism in healthcare. And we're going to be bringing you interviews with a number of them. This week on the show, it's the top thought leaders shaping tech-enabled healthcare, interspersed with insights from Vive. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. My first guest is Dr. Mickey Tripathi. He's the National Coordinator for Health IT at the Department of Health and Human Services. And we're going to speak about new interoperability regulations that went into effect last year, designed to give patients easier access to their digital health records, and how the government is seeking to implement and enforce that role. We'll also get his take on the biggest tech leaps made by the health system during the pandemic. But first, some housekeeping items. Recruiting is now open for the next installment of Trend Talks, MMNM's invitation-only client-side roundtable. Network with peers, engage in lively discussion, and enjoy other perks of participation. The next Trend Talks is coming up March 23rd. If you're interested in joining, feel free to email me at mark.iskowitz at haymarketmedia.com. And also returning to the event slate for the third year is MMNM's 40 Under 40 program, which celebrates the wealth of accomplished young talent working in and around medical marketing. The live event is coming up March 24th. For ticket information, visit mmm40under40.com. And now back to our show. Dr. Tripathi, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Mark. Really delighted to be here. Absolutely. Got a number of things to talk about, so let's roll right into right. it. Um, later today, I know you're giving a view from Washington uh, on uh, what's on the federal health IT uh, priority docket. And I know one of your points is bound to be uh, the new interoperability regulations that went into effect last year. Yeah, we might touch on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of a, a minor, minorly interesting point. Uh, to ban information blocking and give patients easier access to their digital health records through their smartphones. Can you explain the significance of that uh, that rule? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the rule is, um, uh, it's it implements the 21st Century Cures Act which was passed uh, a long time ago, actually. It was signed by President Obama. That's how long ago <laughs> the 21st Century <laughs> Cures Act was passed uh, in 2016. And, um, and the rule had a couple, uh, the law had a couple of things in it for health IT. And one of the, you know, the main features, which was genuinely new, was the creation of this, you know, this, this new paradigm um, that we you know, call information blocking. So that's what it was called in the rule, was uh, a specific um, uh, you know, um, effort to you know, stop interference, as the, this is the way the law is framing it, um, stop interference with the sharing of information with other authorized parties um, as allowed by applicable federal and state law. So the idea was that, you know, there is a lot of friction in exchange of information. HIPAA, um, you know, uh, permits the sharing of information with other parties um, without patient um, consent for treatment payment operations, as long as they're HIPAA-regulated entities. Um, the 21st Century Cures Act, in some ways, complements that by saying, well, it's not just permitted to share information. You actually have an obligation to share that information as long mm -hmm. as it's allowed by law and, you know, and, and, and practical, um, you know, sort of issues. So that's the importance of it. I mean, and then there's, there's some other pieces that, you know, that sort of complement that um, standardization of 
APIs for access to information, network interoperability, which we can dive into. But you know, but that's largely you know that that's uh, you know sort of the big policy thrust that came out of the 21st Century Cures Act. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's uh, you know not just a nice to have, but it's really necessary to have information flowing smoothly through the health system because there's a lot of decision points along the patient journey where you know that health data comes in handy. Um, and implementation and enforcement of this information blocking ban uh, has been a priority for the ONC. How, how big of a problem is information blocking currently? You know, it's, I mean, it's hard to tell. Uh, you know, we did, um, you know, the rule just went into effect, had been delayed, you know, for a number, you know, for a number of years for a variety of reasons. Obviously, the pandemic was mixed in there as well. Um, but, you know, we came in, we put it into effect on April 5th um, and said, you know, it's been over four years since the law was passed. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we, yeah, it's about time to actually put it into effect. So we put it into effect on April 5th. We just last week or the week before published data from the first year well, it was just short of, you know, a, a year of reporting of the complaints that we get. So mm -hmm. the way this is set up is that, and it's a little bit unusual, but this is the way the law set it up, is that ONC is responsible for defining the policy, as it were. What is information blocking? What would be allowable exceptions that someone could say, well, here's why I'm not sharing information, but shouldn't be found, you know, um, to be in violation of the rule. Um, and also the law said that ONC was responsible for collecting complaints. I think it almost literally said ONC will set up a portal which is kind of funny. I mean, why point to that kind of technology? But anyway, you know, the law says we set up a portal. So we set up a portal. Um, so there's a portal where people can come and, you know, submit a complaint. Um, we had uh, about 275 complaints that were filed over that time period, which, which averages to like roughly one a day mm -hmm. um, since, since April 5th of last year. Um, you know, who knows whether that's all there is, or is that just the tip of the iceberg, or is that an overstatement? Because of course, those are just complaints. And then the way the law you know, works is that we get a complaint, but then we pass that to the Office of the Inspector General. They're actually the ones who do the real enforcement, meaning they're the ones who do an investigation. They determine whether a violation has happened, and then they determine um, a penalty. Um, so, you know, so, so it's also hard, you know, to say how much of, let's just take those 275, how many of those would actually turn into actual findings of information blocking? You know, we don't know. Just to step back for a second, you know, my perspective on information blocking has always been, and it continues to be, that, um, that you know, that, the, that for the vast majority of cases that we might think of as being information blocking, it's more a question of priorities of the organizations. It's not about an active, you know, chief information blocking officer that lives at every organization whose job it is to make sure the doors are locked tight. Um, it's much more about, you know, any, any provider organization, any vendor supporting provider organizations, they have, you know, 50 things on their priority list. And it's really hard to, you know, sort of adjudicate among all of those. And so, you know, interoperability has, you know, too often found itself too far down the priority list, I think. Um, and so, you know, this is basically saying everyone needs to move it up on the priority list. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. So you mentioned there was nearly 300 complaints of healthcare organizations allegedly blocking access to patient data that had been logged into the portal since the interoperability regulation went into effect last year. Um, now, the key here, from what I understand, is that under the rule, providers cannot inhibit the access exchange or use of health information unless the data fall within eight exceptions. How easy would it be for a health system, say, or an EHR vendor to use these as a loophole? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's always hard to sort of assess, you know, how easy or hard would it be? And, and certainly, you know, um, thinking of it as a loophole also has its own <laughs> connotation. Um, but, uh, question. you know, but I, you know, I think that, you know, that, uh, uh, at the end of the day, um, 
any investigation of a complaint is going to be case by case. So any investigation will be, and it isn't, it isn't as if um, there is a, uh, a central reporting mechanism for taking an exception. You know, it's not like um, under meaningful use days when you were literally receiving an incentive from the federal government um, and you had to report on whether you were you know, meeting the meaningful use requirements, some of the quality measures, some of the other requirements. Um, if you didn't do a particular thing, you literally would have to write in, I am taking this exception for this reason, a hardship exception or whatever it is. And that was a proactive step that you had to take. And then CMS would look at that and say, okay, that's okay. So you will still get your incentive, even though you couldn't that thing. With information blocking, there's nothing like that. It isn't as if they report that this request came in, I am taking exception one and three A, and I'm reporting them to Mickey Tripathi. And now he has recorded. <laughs> um, basically, the way it'll work is that, you know, a complaint gets filed. Um, OIG will look at it and see if whether on the face of it, it appears to be, you know, sort of uh, information blocking, and then they will make a determination based on other priorities of whether they do an investigation. It would be at that point that a provider would be able to represent, well, here's why I didn't do that. It was for this and this and this reason. But at that point, you're, you've got, you know, the OIG looking at the case details they're already in there, right? And that's how the investigation works. And it's very much about what are the details of the situation? What is the knowledge that you had? Because there's a knowledge standard as well associated with it. So in, in, you know, in some ways, you know, because it's not proactive reporting of it, you could say, well, gee, it's easy for anyone to take that. On the other hand, anytime an investigation comes, that means they're actually there. I mean, they're looking at the details of it, regardless of what you say about an exception. They're saying, well, let's not, let's not talk about the exception. Let's talk about what you actually did. Or no, nobody do. really wants to be the focus of an OIG <laughs> right. investigation yeah. either. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want. Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, of a total of 46 claims that seem likely to allege information blocking specifically by a health IT developer, 42 are against health IT developers who participate in the ONC health IT certification program. Two claims are against health information networks slash health information ex exchanges. And an IT developer could include an EHR vendor. Uh, some have pointed out that the ban lacks teeth, but there is an effort to add fines. Are you a supporter of that? So there are actually fines for, so it's not a question of whether I'm a supporter or not, because the law actually specifies that for, um, for uh, so there are three actors um, that, uh, you know, basically the people who are responsible for not interfering with the exchange of information. Um, it's provider organizations, and it's a very broad definition of provider. So not just, you know, people when they think provider, they think, oh, my doctor in my hospital. Well, it also includes your physical therapist. It also includes your pharmacist. It also includes your lab. It also includes uh, you know, a wide variety of provider types. It also includes a nursing home. So it's a very broad definition of providers. Um, second category is certified technology developers, which is you know, EHR developers and others who are certified through the ONC program. But it's almost every EHR that you can think of you know, is, is covered by that. And then health information networks, health information exchanges are the third actor. The law specified penalties for technology developers and health information networks. And very specifically, it was written in the law, it said that OIG can assess civil monetary penalties of up to a million dollars per incident for either of those um, types of actors. So those penalties are already in place. I mean, once the OIG publishes final rule, those will actually be you know, effective at that point. Um, the, but because the law does specify that they have the authority to do that. What the law also did, though, which is a little more complicated, is they said that for providers, the last actor here, um, that the Secretary of, of Health and Human Services will determine what they called appropriate disincentives. 
And so that's a process that we're going through right now to you know, determine what should, how will we define appropriate disincentives. And then that'll go through normal rulemaking as specified by the law. The law gave the secretary no new authority. And it also said that uh, it had to go through normal rulemaking. So that's the process we're working on right now. So we, of course, are going to, you know, we, we support the law. Um, and we are absolutely, you know, working very, very hard on closing that, that piece of the enforcement gap. Because, it's, you know, it's really unfair to everyone, I think. It's unfair to the other actors who have penalties associated with them and providers who are using their systems don't have a penalty. You, you can clearly see, you know, that's, that, that's kind of hard. If you're a technology developer, it's like, well, wait a minute. That, you know, someone who's using my system doesn't have a penalty. They, you know, and now all of a sudden I might get implicated in something that, you know, that uh, actually was them. Um, and for providers themselves, I mean, everyone needs to make decisions about where they're going to invest their time, whether they're going to invest their money. And it's, you know, it's unfair to a provider to not know what penalty might I face if I do this, that, or the other thing. Sure, sure. A little predictability always helps. Right. Last year on the podcast, I interviewed Joe Miles from Google Cloud, and they did a study showing some of the biggest tech leaps in the healthcare system during the pandemic specifically from February 2020 to June 2021. Unsurprisingly, telehealth you know, came up big. As the healthcare system reboots, I was wondering, what are some of the biggest changes from your point of view? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, um, yeah, more broadly, uh, you know, location-independent care is kind of how I think about it, um, has, uh, has, has just grown dramatically. Um, so, you know, we, we immediately leap to telehealth, which is, you know, um, you know, our, our medical equivalent of Zoom, right? I mean, that's what everyone naturally right. gravitates to. And it's like, yeah, that is certainly an important part of it. Yeah. And, and so that's going to be, you know, that we know that's big. Well, a whole lot will depend on, you know, how reimbursement works. And that's, you know, obviously something that CMS is working on of, you know, what happens after the, you know, the public health emergency and will they continue to you know, pay for that? All of that. Those are all you know, questions that, um, that CMS is working on. But there are other things that are also increasingly important that we've seen the rise of that we didn't really expect before, like, you know, the whole category of remote, remote diagnostics, at-home tests. Um, you know, if you think about all the testing that happens in the country um, with the push because of COVID for better technologies for you and I to do an at-home test that actually has a pretty good, you know, reliability and accuracy to it, um, that is now going to usher in, I think, all sorts of other tests. It's like, well, why aren't we doing more of that? And what that means is that more and more of the total testing that happens in the country is actually going to be through these at-home systems. If you just kind of think, you know, probably more testing overall because I can purchase those now, you know, on my own. But then more and more of that will actually be in these at-home tests. So that that is a whole issue now related to the interoperability of that. How do I actually get those results into the hands of of your provider, for example, who increasingly is going to want to know what was the result of that own, that that at-home test, um, and also for public health reporting, things that are important to the country as well. So I think that's another really important, you know, sort of uh, new technology area that. Uh, Previously, it was focused mostly in the developing world where, you know, the, no, I did some work in a, you know, prior to joining the federal government with the Gates Foundation. We we're working on remote diagnostics technologies in Africa and, you know, and Gates was, you know, was, was funding a bunch of that. And now, lo and behold, a whole bunch of those things that we we're thinking about there were, you know, thinking about in the U.S. now. Mm -hmm. Pressed into service uh, during this uh, right. pandemic. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And showing value that means they're probably going to persist. Mm -hmm. Can I have you answer one other question? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Um, and uh, we talked about some of the ONC's key federal health care priorities. Uh, can you tell me about uh, your health equity by design work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we came in, so health equities, you know, 
huge, huge priority for the administration, for ONC, for HHS, for ONC, for Mikitropathy. <laughs> um, and all of us are very committed yeah, to it. Sure. And one of the things that we've, you know, looked at as we kind of step back and, you know, have said, wow, well, you know, why are these health equity issues here to begin with um, in terms of, you know, health IT? Um, so just looking at the health IT piece of this, because, um, you know, obviously, ONC only has a certain amount of influence in a part of health healthcare, which is huge. And then health IT is only a part of it, right? We could fix all of health IT and still have health equity issues. Obviously, there are much bigger system issues. But for our world, you know, we kind of looked at it and said, well, what are, what are some other paradigms that we might think of that, um, that were fundamental in nature that, um, that, the, you know, that, that we've addressed in certain ways in the way we think about software design and, and evolution. And that's where we you know, started thinking, well, you know, we have safety by design, we have privacy by design, we have security by design. All of those to a software developer is about, those are core design constructs mm -hmm. that from the very beginning you say, here's my list of things that I absolutely, aside from the product features and the you know, right. product market fix and fit and all of that stuff that you do, you're saying well, all these other things are core market features. We're now saying that you know health equity ought to be one of those things as well. So mm -hmm. we're not trying to cobble you know cobble together or try to bolt on something later or figure out, uh, you know, how did we not realize that there are these big differences in uh, <laughs> in outcomes or in treatment for people during a you know during a pandemic? Um, so we're looking at it from a couple of different angles. One is data itself. So ONC standards. Um, you know, define a lot of what's in an electronic health record system. Not mm -hmm. everything, but, you know, a lot of what's in an electronic health record system, including data that's really important to health equity. Race, ethnicity, language capture, um, social determinants of health data, sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, all of those things are data elements that are required to be supported in the EHR system. So we're doing work to say, how do you make sure that those are standardized? And how do you then try to get greater consistency in the use of those? The other half of that, so that, that starts to get you to this design concept of saying, all right, now at least I know and have the ability to know what's going on with different populations in, in you know, my patient panel, for example. And then um, on the other side of it is how do I actually have um, appropriate use of that data to be able to mitigate health equity um, you know, issues before they turn into health disparities. So things like how is that information used in algorithms? Is there a way to think about um, you know, mitigating or at least making transparent where there may be algorithmic bias related to um, health equity sensitive issues, for example? Um, mm -hmm. Building in interoperability mechanisms so that we actually have interoperability with social service organizations as well as other care providers, right? Because right? Right. right now we focus focused on interoperability for other care well, for a particular patient, it may be that referring them for housing assistance might actually be the next best right. thing for them than referring them to the ENT. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But right now we've focused on how do we get you know better referrals to the ENT, haven't thought a lot about how do I actually refer That's them a to problem housing too. assistance. Um, right, right. So, uh, so anyway, those are you know kind of you know a bunch of the ideas that we're working really hard on. We have an upcoming hearing, let me just use this opportunity, on March sure. 10th. Um, so just you know, a few days from now, um, there's going to be hearing of our health IT advisory committee. Um, the afternoon session is completely focused on health equity by design. So welcome anyone. That's a public call, a public Zoom meeting. Okay. So anyone is you know welcome to join that, and we really look forward to it. Okay, great. Yeah, one of the uh, coolest sort of um, uh, social determinants of health uh, aspects I found was the integration of the SDOH network of providers within a. A provider's EHR potentially, so that yep. they, like you said, they could order, um, you know, um, access to um, a uh, a food bank or you know, um, you know, something that wouldn't fall under the range of a normal referral, but something that falls under the SDOH because, you know, uh, you can pr you can create a drug and you can market a drug, for instance, but if the 
uh, environment where the patient is taking the drug in is not really supportive, um, it's only going to go so far. So yep. this whole fabric of care really, um, uh, you know, uh, be, being furthered, you know, through through the through the software infrastructure was really an exciting element. It's, it's interesting to hear that that's kind of uh, one one of your priorities. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, we've you know the secretary is very very uh, you know sort of focused on uh, on all, all of us looking at mm-hmm. health equity issues and as you know and as very engaged with you know with ONC and with every other agency and making that a priority and you know doing everything that uh, that he can and and we can as a department to you know to bring this stuff forward. Some of the stuff is just really insidious, and I think that's mm-hmm. the you know. You know, that's the that's um, what I think the more you look at it the more you start to appreciate so just one last thing I know before sure, we go sure. is uh, you know there was a study that was done um, uh, that looked at and I forget where it was published but it was in a you know one of the big journals with JAMA or New England Journal mm-hmm. um, where they looked at a number of clinical settings and they looked at the allocation algorithms that allocated care managers to high cost patients, right? Where the idea was, well, if we could mitigate whatever was going on with them with with additional support, then we can reduce the cost of care and that's a benefit to everyone, right? I mean, who would argue with that? Well, one of the things that we have to be very careful of in our, you know, in the US is that things like cost are actually proxies for underlying societal issues that we have related to inequities. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is they they did a bunch of work looking underneath the covers of what was going on with that. Well, it turns out that that two people if just because one person is higher cost in our healthcare system and the other is lower cost, that does not mean they have the same health status. They could actually have the same risk profile, meaning both of them high risk for whatever it is. One of them has high cost, why? Because they have good insurance. That's how they get high cost. The other one isn't getting care, yeah. and that's why they don't have any. They don't have high cost. And so, right. what happens with these algorithms is they say, "Let's devote care managers to the people who are high cost." Well, what have you done? You've just devoted more care managers to the people who have Already good insurance to begin with, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right? And that's and again, that that wasn't. No one designed that. No one said mm-hmm. we are going to make sure that the rich keep getting you know better care, right? And no one did that. I'm not suggesting that, but it's I think it's just to point out that. There's this stuff is just buried in there, and until you pay attention to it, you don't know it's there. And right. It's just reinforcing the inequities that you know present themselves at the doorstep of the healthcare delivery system. Who would have thought health IT is important? It, yep, exactly. Uh, right, right. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Chapathi. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.